Our second reading is from Paul's letter to the Philippians, read from the New Living Translation. Is there any encouragement from belonging to Christ? Any comfort from his love? Any fellowship together in the Spirit? Are your hearts tender and compassionate? Then make me truly happy by agreeing wholeheartedly with each other, loving one another, and working together with one mind and purpose. Don't be selfish. Don't try to impress others. Be humble, thinking of others as better than yourselves. Don't look out only for your own interests, but take an interest in others, too. You must have the same attitude that Christ Jesus had. Though he was God, he did not think of equality with God as something to cling to. Instead, he gave up his divine privileges. He took the humble position of a slave and was born as a human being. When he appeared in human form, he humbled himself in obedience to God and died a criminal's death on a cross. Therefore, God elevated him to the place of highest honor and gave him the name above all other names, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The word of the Lord. We are relational beings. Eugene Peterson put it this way, we are not ourselves by ourselves. You can see this in the fact that we generally cannot enjoy something until we've shared it. You can't fully enjoy a sunset or a new band or restaurant that you've discovered. You can't even enjoy a new friend without wanting to tell somebody else. In the process of telling them, it actually completes the joy. We are so relational that we can't even fully enjoy something without somebody else. In the ancient world, the traditional world, relationships were built with a constellation of tight and interwoven depth and wideness. And it looks something like this. If you were a parent, you were married, you had children, and you had grandparents that probably all lived in the same house. And on the same street were all the rest of your family. So if you think about your neighborhood, your townhouse row, everyone there related to you, your aunts and uncles and cousins. And while that might seem oppressive, actually it meant that you had depth of relationship over time and you knew where you belonged. You knew that you had people to care for you and people that you cared for. So whether you were single or married, old or young, you all worked together. You raised children together. You cared for sick together, and when you were sick, you were cared for. You were not alone. Now, the bad part about the traditional world way of approaching things was that it made an idol of your family or your clan. It made an idol of your race and ethnicity, because it was so tightly bound that if you're not one of us, you're not anything. It also meant that your status was fixed. In that culture, if you were of a lower caste, you remained there your whole life. And if you were in the village and you were the highest member of that village, you got to remain the highest village. Even if you were the village idiot, you would still be the highest in that town. 
And God forbid if you were single or barren or foreign in a culture that valued children and marriage and being of the right ethnicity. The modern world, the individualistic world, threw off all of those bonds of fixed status in favor of independence. So we live in the most upwardly mobile culture ever created. There is economic opportunity. Every single person can become something. Anyone can become president. That's not just meant to be a joke. It's actually true. Anyone can become president at any point. Well, if you were born here. But the idea is there is that you can make something of yourself. That was not the case in the ancient world. That is a good thing. The problem is we have become, as a result of this, so transient and individualistic that we have atomized our culture. We are so separate and divided, and we have very little relational connection or commitment. In his 2000 book, Bowling Alone, Robert Putnam, a professor at Harvard, noted how over the course of the 50s, 60s, 70s, into the 80s and 90s, there was fewer, fewer commitments of civic association. His book, Bowling Alone, talked about how in the 50s and 60s, people all belonged to uh, bowling clubs where every Tuesday night you would go with your bowling team and you would show up. They expected you to be there. You had your uniform. And today, almost no one belongs to bowling leagues or associations like a Lions Club or even becoming members of a church. We do not want those kind of constraints on us. We want the freedom to do what we want. Today, we do not live in relationships of three generations. It's just us. If you're married, you might have two generations if you have kids. We do not have an extended family around us, and we certainly don't have a village the way that the ancient world would have. As a result, we lack a sense of place or grounding. Friendships today are based on proximity, convenience, and shared interest. If the shared interest wanes, so does the friendship. If distance comes into it, the friendship goes. We have few long-term friends. And instead, our, our relational circle looks something like this. A circle of friends where a few are close, some are a little further, and that's about it. It is not the tight web of the traditional and ancient world. As a result, many of us are looking for community. In an article in the Harvard Business Review, Dr. Vivek Murthy wrote, loneliness is a growing health epidemic. We live in the most technologically connected age in the history of civilization, yet rates of loneliness have doubled since the 1980s. Today, over 40% of adults in America report feeling lonely, and research suggests the real number may be higher. We are transient, we are individualistic, we are atomized, and we live alone. In 1960, one in eight people lived alone. Today, one in four people live alone. We now have crossed the threshold where 50% of adults are single, more than it ever has been, and it's actually going to continue in that direction. The trends in the West will continue into singleness and apart from family. People are looking for community. It's why people moved to Vienna. 
They move to Vienna because they want the facade of the front porch that says, hey, we're all here. Of a church street that gets closed for, for block parties or a Maple Avenue that gets closed for parades. They want that feel of kids' sports where your kids are part of a team and as a result, so are you. People often move to Vienna, in my observation, even out of places like Arlington or D.C. because they're searching for tighter community. They want friends and they want something that, that sim is similar to extended family. But in the midst of all of our independence and our soloness and our singleness, there's a need. A need for deeper friendships than our culture is ready to give. Wes Hill, a New Testament professor and a single man, wrote, I acutely need intimacy and loyalty from friends. I'm eager for them to say to me, we love you, Wes, because you're ours. No strings attached. Another friend of mine who's single a couple years back said, yes, I want to get married. Why? Because I want to have kids. But more than that, it's because I want someone on my team. And whether you're single or married, the same is true. We want people to love us because we are theirs and we love them because they're ours. We want people on our team. But instead, we live in a profoundly lonely culture seeking community and friendship that the culture cannot provide. In this sense, the church, at least as it was drawn up in the New Testament, is poised to be the antidote for not just modern atomized loneliness, but also an antidote against that ancient tribal clan-based way of thinking. In the New Testament, you get pictures of what we are called to be, a new sort of family. In Luke chapter 8, which we didn't read, Jesus' mother and brothers show up at, at a place where he's teaching, and, th and they say, hey, your mother and brothers are outside. And he says, who are my mother and brothers? Who are my family? Whoever follows me is my family. And Jesus went around with a group of disciples, both men and women, people of high social status and low social status. And they were his new family because family was built not on ethnicity or on blood or on social status, but on following Jesus Christ. The New Testament church that was birthed as the Holy Spirit came in Acts 2, which we read, ended up being a community of deep fellowship where they ate together and worshiped together regularly. But not only that, they shared life together. They shared their resources together. They cared for one another, and it was absolutely contagious. People came to faith in Christ because they saw what God was doing there in Acts chapter 2. The New Testament world is supposed to create a new sort of family. And it's why we drew up in our vision and values that we wanted to be an extended family. That we are an extended family of believers in Jesus Christ. That we would love one another like we are an extended family. And the reason why extended family is the wording is because families are messy and so is the church. And you gather any extended family for a Christmas Eve or a family reunion or some kind of family vacation, and it's going to be a mess. There'll be a little bit of fighting and awkwardness and some cousins you're happier to see and some aunts you choose to avoid. And that happens in family, but you're still family. With family, you can let down your guard because you know that they are there, that you're one of them.
that's what we as a church are called to be. An extended family of believers in Jesus Christ, sharing life together, joys and sorrows, and caring for one another. What it could look like is this model that's similar to but different than the ancient world model. So the ancient world model was built on clan and village, where it was your parents and your children made up the family unit. But I think the church's call is to be a three-generation family, even if it's not by blood or marriage. That we would have brothers and sisters in Christ at a peer level, we would have people younger than us that we care about and see as ours, and people older than us that are pouring into our lives and we are caring for them. It's in a sense why we make the choices we do on a Sunday morning. What we do on a Sunday morning is not just pragmatic. It's not just unintentional. We have teenagers in here on a purpose. They read scripture. They play music. They help serve in other ways. Why? Because they are a part of the body of Christ. We want kids, little kids, not just out of the room the whole time because they get noisy, right? We want them in here because they're ours. And they do go out for their time during the the sermon, but we want them back in during the family Eucharist. The choices we make are trying to have as much cross-pollinization between the oldest and the youngest as we possibly can. And through this process of being together, worshiping together, sharing in this just Sunday morning together, it's an opportunity for us to cross beyond our, our natural level, to move up and down, and maybe over the course of time cultivate the sort of relationships that maybe have a tighter circle that's your more immediate extended family, but the church itself as your village, a place where you are known and cared for and others are on your team. But to move that direction is going to mean moving steps further in. It's not just showing up on Sunday mornings. It is actually going into things like small groups, and it's taking the step further to actually look for friends, which I am not going to legislate from up here. You're going to have to find your friends. But you're not going to do it just showing up on a Sunday morning. But the desperate need is to have that sort of deep friendship and caring over the course of time that says, you are loved and cared for because you are ours. You are on my team, and I on yours. Unfortunately, the modern American Christian church, ours included, is still so transient and surface in our relationships. Most churches still to this day emphasize the nuclear family, a husband and a wife and kids, and those are good things. But without the rest, it's a weakness. It's still an individualistic approach. As long as I have my spouse and my kids, I'm good. That's not what the gospel calls us to, a new sort of family. We as individuals are too shaped by our modern individualistic culture and our natural desire for independence. We need the gospel to reshape and empower us to be the sort of friends and extended family that our natural independence does not want. The Bible talks about the root of our issue not just as a sin issue, but as a glory issue. We are selfish people who are seeking our own glory. That's why in Philippians 2, when Paul is writing this, he encourages the the Philippians, do nothing out of selfish ambition 
or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourself, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. The phrasing selfish ambition and vain conceit sums up our big issue. And that word vain conceit is that is two words brought together that are actually empty glory. Empty glory. The word glory is, is all throughout the Bible. God alone is the one of glory. He is, it, it has to do with the idea of significance and impact and matter and lasting. We all want glory because we all want to matter. We all want significance. We all want value and worth. We want to be lasting in whatever way it is. The word glory also comes from the word weight or weighty. It is to be an immovable mover. Like, look at these two ships. One of these is an immovable mover. One of these has more glory than the other. If one of them decides to go one way, the other one will move. In daily life, we all want to be the bigger ship. But the Bible makes it clear only God is the immovable mover. And we will only rightly find ourselves in relation to the true God of glory. But the fall suggests that we reject that. That though we are made in the image of God, made to reflect God, to enjoy harmony with him and with one another, instead, we listen to the tempter. Just eat and you'll be like God. You too can have your own glory. The result is all of us are alienated from God and alienated from one another. So now we seek glory, significance, and purpose on our own apart from God. That's how we live. We look for meaning in our work or in our social circle or in our family. But it's we see our desire for glory even in our relationships at work or at home or in the neighborhood. We see it because we are always so easily bumped over. It's why we walk into a room and we're always sizing people up and making quick judgments about them because we're trying to protect our place as the bigger ship. And if you do seek to find your meaning, your hope, your joy in your work, or in your intelligence, or being the funny person in the, in the group of friends. What happens when somebody more talented, or funnier, or more successful walks into the room? You are either absolutely crushed, or you become vicious, fighting for your place. Why is it that we are so easily offended if we don't get credit, or we aren't invited? Because we're trying to guard our place, our weight, our significance our glory. We are desperate to keep as much approval and power and control and glory as we can. But the gospel lays it out that true glory was found on a cross. That's why Paul says, hey, you want to know what your life is supposed to look like? It's supposed to look like Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ who, verse 6, though he was, in the f- though he was actually God, did not use his godness for his own advantage. Different translations do all sorts of things with this word uh, to his own advantage. The ESV says grasped. N.T. Wright in his translation talks about exploiting his divinity for his own good. And that's a great way to talk about it. Jesus was God, but he doesn't use his godness for his own good. 
Instead, he humbles himself, becomes a servant to the point of death on a cross for God's glory and our good. Think about how he constrains his power, his glory, if you would. In Gethsemane, he's praying, Father, take this cup from me. But when the Father says no, he accepts it. He doesn't do what we would do, which is, I am also God, and I will choose not to go to the cross. And then when he does go to the cross, as he's hanging there, people are mocking him, right? If you're the son of God, save yourself. Actually, he was the son of God, and he could have saved himself. Not only could he have saved himself, come off of the cross, he could have eliminated, vanquished, he was the creator of the universe, the sustainer of the universe, the judge of the universe. The people that are nailing the nails into his arms, he could have caused the heart attack instantly. What do you think we would have done? You have the power to pull the breath out of the very people who are crucifying you. He does not exploit his power for his own good, but lays it down, serving God's purposes and our good. That is where true glory is found. That's where true relationships are found. The gospel does this. It abolishes cultural values and human categorization, radically redefining what matters and why we matter. Every culture that has ever existed assigns value to people. It says some people are up and others are down. Some people are in, others are out, right? In the traditional society, the traditional world, your family name, your social status in the village, and being a man got you up, made you in. The modern world throws that out. And instead, it says the successful, the connected, the powerful, the popular, those of you who can perform according to the metrics of your neighborhood or your workplace, you're in, you're up. But it also has out and down. The addicted, those who struggle in school, those of you who feel like you don't measure up by the world standards of success, you know that the world around you says you're out, you're down. The gospel throws that out. It says everyone's out, but anybody can come in. Every one of us is sinful and needy and helpless. There is no one that is higher up on the chain. But in Christ, all of us can be forgiven. All of us can be loved. All of us can be accepted. The traditional world valued power and required dependence. You must be dependent on the clan. The modern world throws that off, valuing freedom and independence at the expense of everything else. The gospel enables relationships of humility and commitment and interdependence because it changes the values and enables the sort of thing that is not natural to us, giving ourselves to others for God's glory and their good. Part of our vision and values is to be an extended family. We, as a people, and our culture around us in the 21st century, we need extended family. We were created for that sort of web of relationships that existed in the traditional world, 
but without all of the negative constraints in it. We are made for deep and meaningful relationships that we struggle to find. A church that is truly living out the gospel would be a place for married people and single people, for the widowed, those with or without kids, all ages. Finding a place to belong and to be known, to experience grace and love, to experience God. Now, in practice, that might look like you having closer friends and further friends. Much like probably in that ancient world, you sort of had the, the closer family unit and the broader family unit. And at times, it's going to be messy. A, a church living this out as extended family is not going to be a perfect model. But the idea of extended family boils down to one word. Friends. Do you actually have friends? I don't mean friends across the country. I mean friends right here, right now. Friends in this place, friends on your street, friends at work, people that you are deeply entwined with. The gospel calls us to have wider friends than we naturally do. People older or younger than us, people different. And that's going to involve proximity and calling, meaning you cannot, if you're married, be best friends with every single person. If you're single, you can't be best friends with every married person. If you're in your 40s, you can't be best friends with everyone in their 70s and 80s or everyone in their teens. But you should have some people that you know, that you're, you care about, that know about you, that are outside of your natural social status or season of life. That's why I love when I see people in our church who are empty nesters who go out with kids' classes. Just that little act. There are two women in our church who became friends a number of years ago because they sat near each other, even though they are two generations apart. They get together regularly and appreciate so many things. One is a widow, one is a mom with kids at home. They are not from the same era. It took just reaching out and saying, hey, do you want to come over? I want people in this church to have friendships and relationships across seasons and stages of life. And I know a couple of families in here, mine included, who have close friends that, even though I'm married and have kids, that are single and do not. And my kids and these other kids think of this person as their aunt, their uncle. Look beyond people who are like you and open up to be consistently in the lives of people who are not at your exact level. But that's going to involve more than Sunday morning. It's going to involve more than programs or events or even small groups. It's going to involve you fulfilling God's call on you with who he places in your life and on your heart at a given moment and following up with it consistently over time. The easier one is simply to be deeper friends. Why well, say easier? Because it's more natural, but we don't do it well either. Besides just people outside of your stage of life, how about just become deep friends with people in your stage of life? People you actually enjoy being with. Where you have shared history. That's good. Go further. The two words would be commit, being one. Commit to people. This is going to take time. Here's my experience. In five years, you will not be deep friends with somebody. It will take 10, 20, 40. 
which is why most of us are at a disadvantage. None of you have been in this church for 10 years. I haven't. We started seven years ago. But what would it look like to be in the same church, to deepen the same relationships over the course of 20 or 30 or 40 years, not just three or five or seven? And if you're in the younger stages of life, think about that as some of the direction you want to go. You can follow career, but choosing place and people over the course of decades can be an incredibly rich and fruitful relational well. So deep friendships start with committing to those who are actually y you like, but actually committing. Second is it's going to take humility. Deep friendships, extended family takes humility. Not using people just to get something, nor being guarded because you're afraid of what they'll take from you. It's a willingness to be dependent on and to be depended on by others. Opening your life and your struggles to some people. Opening your life decisions and even your money to people. Even if it's just a few. The problem is that's really scary. I've talked about it for a number of years and I'm still not there. <laughs> because commitment of any sort requires relinquishing control. And humility requires relinquishing power. And we don't want to do that. But the church is called to be a community of commitment and humility. Of people deeply entwined and committed to one another. Most of us avoid deep community because we want to maintain control and independence. Or if we do enter community, it's in order to get something out of it. Approval, status, help. The gospel calls us to surrender all power and all control to Christ and trust him. To trust what he brings and how he chooses to use us. Only the gospel of Christ can enable us to do this. You can't just try really hard, starting in the next year, to be much better friend. You need the gospel to root itself deeper into your thinking and your self-understanding. The gospel tells us God came and gave up everything for us. He did not use his power for his own good, but laid it down for ours. When you are fully overwhelmed by that, and it takes hold of the, your way of thinking about yourself and approaching relationships in the world around you. It can enable you to be deeply committed to others without fear. Because what God has given you cannot be taken away. It can enable you to have authentic humility where you're truly seeking the good of others and not your own. Because Christ has done the same for you. When you realize that you are loved by God, and experience his spirit in all of its fullness. That's what Philippians 2.1 was talking about. Then you can look to others and pour yourself out in grace and forgiveness and compassion and generosity and humility and sacrifice. Only with the gospel present in our hearts are we going to have the ability to develop deep and wide community of humility 
and commitment and authenticity. Let's pray. God, we lose sight so often of what you are offering us in Jesus Christ. We give lip service to the wonder and amazement of the cross. The cross is not just a model for us to follow in our relationships. It is the power to pour ourselves out in love, to not exploit our standing or our wealth or our strengths or our power for our own good, but to lay them down for your glory and for the good of others. Enable us to be the men and women, the people, the friends, the family you have called us to be. In Jesus' name, amen.